Good morning. How are you? Good. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I am the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we will be in 1 John today. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table. Feel free to grab one uh, as we open up God's Word. Please join me in prayer. King Jesus, we praise your holy name. We take a moment and a breath to acknowledge you are the King of all things. You have bought us. You have saved us. You have redeemed us. We are your servants. There is nothing we did to earn your love, but that you came and saved us. And for that, we proclaim and and profess that your name is holy and your name is glorious and your name is beautiful, Jesus. Your cross is the power to save. Your blood cleanses us from all sin and we stand in righteousness. And because we stand in righteousness and your righteousness, Jesus, we gladly come together to worship you today. Help us, Jesus, in our lives, not just in this time, but to have our hearts and minds formed by the reality of your gospel and your good news and to live that reality out with a passion for you, Lord. We need you. As I approach the text, this is your holy word. In and of myself, I am not up to this task. None of us are. But in your grace and mercy, you've saved us from ourselves and give us a life. So I pray pray you as your people, we'd open your word and we'd hear your words and we'd take it to heart. We'd believe it. We'd know it. And we'd live it, Jesus. You'd help us, Lord God, in the world in which we live, in the time and place in which we live, to abide and remain in You regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's happening in the world, and regardless what anyone says about us or who we are or about You, Jesus, uh, but that we would cling tightly to these words, that we'd hear John's words to us in Your Word, and that the words of the Apostle would be as fresh and as new and as real and as alive and active for us today as the church that received this letter from him. Help us to just be lit up for the truth of who you are, Lord. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. So we are going to be in 1 John. Uh, We are working our way through this wonderful, amazing letter. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, as I mentioned before, there's some over there. Feel free to grab one. Um, Today, we we look at a very, um, to be honest with you, very intense text. Uh, John has had no shortage of very intense texts for us. He's had no shortage of very important uh, and heavy things to say to us. And and today's text is no different. We're in chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 18. And and I think this is so important for us because this helps us navigate the time and place uh, and the cultural atmosphere in which we are living. Because as Christians who love Jesus and believe His Bible and His Word, we are living in an intense time and place. Now, here's the thing that we need to constantly remember. So is John. And as we'll see as we look in this text, so have all the brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. And the Bible actually tells us and helps us understand the time and the place in which we live and how we as Christians are to operate in that. And that, honestly, as people who love God's Word and believe His Bible, shouldn't be a surprise to us. Amen. And so as we come to this, uh, as we look at this, uh, I want us to look at three questions. And and three questions the Bible will answer for us. Number one, where are we at in human history? Okay, where are we at in human history? Uh, Number two, how do we know this? Uh, And number three, what do we do about it? So go ahead, we'll dig in here um, in verse 18. Children. Now again, remember... This is John. He's writing between 90 and 95 A.D. Um, So he, specifically for a first century person, uh, is is very old. He's lived an extraordinarily long time, especially for a first century person, which is really helpful for us uh, in God's grace and providence that happened because not only did he live an extraordinarily long time, so did one of his main disciples, Polycarp. Polycarp, one of his disciples, 
also lived a very long time and could even speak into the early church about who John was and who he is. Uh, He was the youngest of all the disciples. He likely lives longest of all the apostles and the disciples and the people who walked with and were an eyewitness to Jesus as he helps the church navigate the time and place in which they live. He's lived through Nero's persecution in 64. He's lived through the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he's here in the late 90s. Many of his friends have been killed for the faith. They've gone through hardship and they've endured and they've held fast to the reality of who Jesus is because there is nothing more valuable and important than the gospel of Jesus Christ and that truth going forth to the ends of the earth. And John knows it. And he wants these people to know it. And so he starts with this word. Children. Children. Because he's probably older than absolutely everybody in this church he probably helped plant. Children. It is the last hour. It's interesting that he doesn't even say, like Hebrews chapter 1 is going to say, uh, in these last days. He's going to strip use the word, the last hour. What does he mean, the last hour? When he says the last hour, he means the time between Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended to heaven, and the time as 1 Thessalonians 4 is going to tell us that he returns. So this whole time between when John's writing here in the late 90s AD, and now in 2015, this is the last hour. This last hour is the church age. This is the time and place in which God has chosen to relate to people through his sons, as, Hebrew, uh, as Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and on says. In many times, in many ways, God spoke, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus Christ. God has communicated to the world everything He wants the world to know about Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ alone. Jesus. God Himself who took on flesh to save us from ourselves, to pay the price for our sins, to release us from Satan, to save us from hell, to do these things for His glory and for our joy that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we live in this hour as his ambassadors taking this truth to the ends of the earth. And he says, this is the last hour. As we await his return, as we await the restoration of all things through his son and the power of his cross, it is the last hour. Well, how do we deal with that, right? We need to understand the significance of the timeline of the Bible. God made all things good. Human beings ultimately broke it. And right there, even at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes a promise to send someone to fix it. That someone is Jesus Christ, his son. And the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to his coming. This is why in Luke 24, he unpacks the whole thing. Greatest Bible study on the planet, on the road to Emmaus, opens up the Old Testament and explains to these two guys on the road how the whole of the Old Testament is about him. Best Bible study. We get one chapter on it. Would have loved to have been there. Um, Think about it all the time. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible because of that significant reality. And so now we live in this church era. And so there's, there's, an, there's a matter in which we, we can feel this tension right now, I think, culturally, here in Seattle, here in America. There's a lot of public debate on what Christianity is and how it works and, and what could be legal and what could not be legal and how that impacts churches and how that impacts Christians and who Christians are and what a Christian is. Uh, and and I've, I've felt the tension. Uh, I mean, I got saved in Seattle, so it's always been here. But you can feel it sort of nationally. Uh, when I became a Christian here in Seattle, there was a cost. I knew there was a cost to following Jesus, and that cost is being felt by the brothers and sisters around our country right at the moment. And that's important. That's not, in, not, not important. But we need to know here that John said it's the last hour. Uh, sometimes because of, you know, you can, you can say what you will about Christendom, because of the, the place of Christianity in the West, in America, and in Europe over history, we haven't maybe felt it the way maybe the brothers and sisters in China have felt it. Maybe the way the brothers and sisters uh, uh, throughout the Eastern Bloc felt it in that time. Uh, through the, the way even the brothers and sisters feel it in Latin America and South America. We, we've had a different role in a different place. But John says here that it's always been the last hour. And in fact, we shouldn't even be surprised that we're here. Here's how John knows it's the last hour, by the way. How do we know? Point two. Wink, wink. Here we are, point two. Because I got one point in four, five words. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, 
So this is eschatological in his nature. And you can read the book of Revelation and you'll see him talk about it. Uh, but honestly, he doesn't really deal with this point here as much as everything else that's here. And, and we could spend a whole time on the book of Revelation, but right now we're actually getting to another point. That's, that's something he's saying. That's, a, that's something he's treating as fact. But then he gets to this whole other point as we keep reading. This is why I can't, church, I, I can't urge you enough. And I know I urge you every week because I just said it. I can't urge you enough. Please read your Bibles. Please read your Bibles. This is God's word. You want God to talk to you, open his word and read it. And when you read it, pretty please with sugar on top, please read it slowly. Please read it nice and slow because when we read it slowly, we see that this is actually not the main point of what he's saying. So follow with me. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, it is coming because it's the last hour. So now many Antichrists have come. Plural. Antichristos. It's a very simple preposition. Anti with Christ, Messiah, put together. Many Antichrists have come. Why is that significance? Well, we'll keep reading and we'll get there. Um, the Antichrist is coming and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. How do you know it's the last hour? People are Antichrist. How do we know we're in the time where God is saving people? Where God is saving all who would call upon the name of the Lord? Because there are enemies of God, and God is in the business of making enemies His friends. God is in the business of through His cross and by His blood, by coming and dying in our place for our sin, makes us right with Him. And there's nothing we can do to earn that. There's nothing we can do to make that happen, but that Jesus Christ had to come down and get to us, and that is the Gospel. So hear it. That means He's coming to save people who are His enemies, which means there are people who are His enemies. There are people who are anti-Messiah, who are anti-Christ. And beautifully and wonderfully in the Gospel, Jesus is in the business of saving those people who call and repent, call on His name and repent and come to know Him and love Him. But He's actually saying, you know that the time is now because there are people who are against the Gospel. And sometimes we, we hit these like high notes in history where we say, oh, this has got to be it. That's the worst thing that could have ever happened. Um, th this must be the end. Uh, 410 A.D., the Visigoths sack Rome. Do you know what a Visigoth is? Probably not, because they're not that big of a deal in your life. Do you know what it is to sack a place? Probably, maybe you, maybe you saw like Braveheart or something, but it means they, they took over the city and they took a bunch. Of, they actually take a bunch of stuff and leave. But in 410, the Visigoths sack Rome. Augustine, who's, or if you want to be very, very proper, Augustine, but Augustine, uh, Augustine has this experience where, where they begin to receive these refugees in North Africa where he's at, because North Africa was still a Christian hotbed at that point in time in history. And they say, this is, must be it. Rome got sacked. Jesus is coming home. Or Jesus is coming back and taking us home soon. Um, and, and we can feel that way. We can feel that heat and we can feel that tension. Um, but if we miss it, people like Augustine in 410 and people like John in 90, 95, 80, they felt it and we might feel it now. And we feel that eminence that Jesus is actually going to return and Jesus is going to wipe every tear from every eye and it is going to happen. Praise the Lord. The evil will be undone. Evil will be dealt with, judged and justified. Or, uh, and, and judged and, and Jesus will be just and justified. That's good news for us. That's good news for these guys. That's good news for Christians in John's time who are being persecuted, who are having their leaders killed, all these things. John gets exiled to Patmos, right? He lived this thing. He lived this reality. And he says this in 19, which is perhaps... Um, to me, one of the most scary verses in the whole Bible. These are the things that keep me up at night. Verse 19. They went out from us. Oh. They went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Then it might become plain that they are not of us. Now he's taking these people who had been part of the church and he's putting them in the category of this 
anti-Christ, anti-Messiah. So, so hear it. Uh, like I said, we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about the book of Revelation and what's going on there, and there is a lot going on there, and that is a worthy subject. Um, but he has something vastly less, um, fantastic's the wrong word, perhaps dramatic is a better word for it, something less dramatic in mind. He has those who are against Jesus and his gospel. He has those who are against God and his word. Uh, it, it's, it's not just, and I'm not saying we can't have some kind of uh, you know, interreligious dialogue or whatever, as long as it's for the end of having people meet Jesus, by the way. But what he's saying is, if you're not for Jesus, you're against Jesus. If you're not pro-Christ, you're anti-Christ, right? And here he says, and if they've gone out from us, they're anti-Christ. Now, let's be careful here. This is one of those verses that gets used wrongly. Does this mean if someone leaves Anchor Church for another Bible-believing church, loving Jesus and believing the Bible, that we're going to pull this verse out? No, that's not what he means at all. How do I know that? I know that from the text of the letter. The letter's about the apostolic teaching. People who have left the apostolic teaching. The message that you heard from us, this being John, not me, not, not apostle, John apostle, is what he says, the message you heard from us, meaning the apostles, Right? He has this in mind, right? So we can have kind of more of a, we'll call it a sectarian view, an overly maybe sectarian view. And by sectarian, I mean a sect, which means if you're not part of this church, you're not part of the church, you're not really a Christian, you need to be part of this church to do that. And that's not what we believe. We have friends who we disagree with even on, on uh, important, even theological issues in this city, who love Jesus, who love his gospel, who are doing a good job preaching that truth and believe his Bible. Praise the Lord. Because this city and this world doesn't need one church. This city and world needs gospel preachers to tell the truth that Jesus saves sinners. And this city and this world needs you to do what Jesus told you to do, and that's to be disciples because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, so therefore go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. That's your job, that's my job, and that's the job of God's people who love Jesus and believe the Bible. A sectarian approach would say, no, 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 we've got it all right. And in a sense, we should actually try our hardest to seek God's word, have our theology informed by God's word, and be formed in that truth and reality. Uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean a lot of things. That doesn't mean the brothers and sisters who disagree with us on important. They are important. They are important, and they do count. But just because they disagree with us doesn't mean they don't love the Lord. And doesn't mean that we're all going to be corrected by Jesus in the kingdom forever, right? We'll all have our theology on straight when we're at home with Jesus forever, praise the Lord. So here, here's how we understand it. Um, and I borrow these, from, these terms from other people. It's regular and irregular. It's an old-timey Baptist uh, way to talk. Several hundred years ago, in fact, uh, it was used often to say regular, irregular. So regular means churches who... Love Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the second member of the Trinity, who atoned for sin and saved sinners from themselves to life in Him. That Jesus, we agree on the gospel. God is holy. Human beings are sinful. We are in need of a Savior. The Savior saves, and we need to respond to the reality of that gospel. We believe the gospel, and we believe the Bible. God's Word. There's an amazing thing that happens I learned this, when I have, uh, you know, in my, in my MA time at Western Seminary, I had so many awesome teachers, but there was one teacher in particular, you know, he just, he's just retiring now, he's been a prof at the seminary level for 40 years, praise the Lord, amazing godly man who he and I don't agree on a number of particular items, but what we do agree on is the Bible. And because we both agree on the Bible, it turns out we both believe on the gospel, and we both believe in the same Jesus. And it turns out we don't actually argue that much about any, you know, argue, that's such a strong word. We find more common ground because we believe the word. We have a lot of common ground because we believe the word. <clears throat> 
And in addition, I think uh, a helpful idea, and I mentioned his name last week, he was very helpful to me on a number of levels, a guy named Daryl Bach, as is very helpful. How do we, how do we sort through these things then? Uh, he actually puts a grading system on this uh, regular idea, on this stuff of what makes someone legit. And you need to know these things because there are a lot of voices out there claiming to be Christians or people from God who love God who may say things that are absolutely contrary to his word and you need not to listen to them. In fact, you not, not only need not to listen to them, you need not to listen to them. You don't listen to them. Okay? But how do we sort that out? Uh, Daryl Bach has a rating system, A rating, apostolic witness type stuff. Jesus, Bible, gospel. We don't disagree. These are the things that make someone a Christian or not a Christian, period. Jesus, gospel, Bible kind of stuff. Now, B rating stuff. This is stuff that is important. This is stuff where I would say uh, that the person who disagrees with you or I on some of these issues still can hold a, what I would call, biblical view. They get their view from the Bible. We just feel strongly on the interpretation another way and think it's actually best read a different way. Um, this is stuff on how, how do you work out foreknowledge? How do you work out predestination? These kind of levels hit here. How do you exegete? How do you, under, pardon me, how do you interpret and understand Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2? What does that look like? What does it mean? There are people who have reasonable differences on these things, but we stand there and say, we actually really believe in what it says. That God, just from the text, foreknew us before the foundations of the earth. That's what we believe as a church. Now, I have brothers and, brothers and sisters that are going to work that out differently, and we're going to feel strongly about that. We're, we're Calvinistic in our interpretation of these things, not because we like Calvin, but because we think Calvin got the Bible right on Ephesians 1 and 2, and Romans 8, and Romans 9, and Romans 10. And I could go on and on and on. Now, that doesn't mean that people who don't hold that exact view aren't Christians. Don't ever say that. Because it's not the truth. Those are our brothers and sisters, for goodness sakes. You've got to treat them that way. You treat them kindly. Now, the C rating. So A, B, C. C rating. I hold my view, but I really understand what you mean. A B rating is, no, no, I, I'm, I, I, I'm going to put my foot down. I'm right here. We're both in the family. We can disagree. You have a good point. The C rating is where I look and say, you know, <clears throat> I think I'm still right, but I really understand what you mean here. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh, this is a mill, pre-mill kind of stuff. We're like, well, yeah, you do have that verse. That's pretty good. Uh, I, still, I still think it's best to read it this way. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can have that conversation. It's a helpful conversation. It's called iron sharpening iron, and we do so with love and class and grace and you don't use words like heretic or non-Christian in that conversation. Those don't belong there. Because we're a family. And whether you're pre-mill or ah-mill, when Jesus returns, we're all excited. You know? And whoever's right here, it's not going to be like three different ways it works out. It's just going to be one way. And we're all going to be stoked about it. Jesus is coming back. And that, that's the thing we can agree on. This is A-rating stuff. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is, Jesus is going to bring the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. He's going to judge. And he's going he's to proclaim those who have their names written in the book of life into the kingdom. That's good news. And we can agree on that. And that's A-rating stuff. Maybe the mechanics of that, we put that down in C. We're like, well, I get it. I get what you're saying. I understand. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. No, I think I'm still right. Now, D-rating stuff. D-rating stuff is, this, again, this is Daryl Bach here. He would put this in the category of, let's both be honest, neither of us really knows. So what's in that category? Uh, Abraham's bosom from 1 Peter. What exactly is that? I, I, I feel pretty confident about my assertion on it, but hey, <laughs> okay. But I think that allows us also to have an amount of class and character and to, to love each other in the gospel and who Jesus is and to really even affirm what the good Lord is doing in the other Bible-believing churches in our own city and in our country and in the world. We want to have that. Okay, but John here is talking about something else. I'm going to read it again. They went out from us but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they were not of us. So here's what I think he's talking about here. I think he is talking about the apostolic wisdom, the apostolic truth. These are people who are saying, saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah. And we can do that in a number of ways. And how do we know what that apostolic truth is? Because it's important. If he's saying, if this is, this is the line, if you go out from here, you're not part of the team anymore. This isn't just for me to tell to you so that you can hear and hear a sermon. Y'all are disciples of the good Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're not pleased, this is the truth. This is who he is. This is his gospel. Become a Christian today. He saves sinners just like me. He'll save you. Meet him. Know him. Love him. So he has in mind people here uh, walking away from who Messiah is. Now, I'm gonna, I think there's three big things. I've kind of been saying them, but I think the three things are the, this apostolic witness can be kind of encapsulated for us with Jesus, his gospel, and his word. Right? Jesus is Messiah. The Messiah, the only Messiah, the one God did promise from Genesis 3, who, who, who God did promise in Deuteronomy 18, 18, uh, the, 18, 18, in 18, we'll just say 18 and drop the colon because that might be the wrong spot. Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, that a prophet greater than Moses would come. Stephen, Stephen in Acts 7 says his name is Jesus. He interprets that for us. Thank you, Stephen. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, God himself, the second member of the Trinity who entered into human history, who changed the way that, that everything worked for God's people, who, who because of his cross, the curtain is torn in two. Jesus, who bled and died to forgive us for all of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as our propitiation, as our expiation, as our atonement. The one who came to bring us life because God so loved the world, he sent his son now we can say all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, period. There's no one who comes in here with anything that says that is bigger than the cross, that God says that is, that is too big for the cross to overcome. There is nothing like that. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the truth. That God is very holy, holier than we can possibly imagine. And ourselves cannot touch His holiness and perfection in our sin. And it is total in its nature. We cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to earn His love. There's nothing we can do to keep His love. He saves us. We receive His love. We become Christians. And we walk in response, a worshipful, loving, wonderful response to this reality. So all of a sudden, then I don't read my Bible, so I will be saved. I read my Bible because I am saved. And I I want to hear from the good Lord. I don't pray so that God will save me or will keep me, but he has saved me and he has kept me. And not height nor depth nor power nor principality will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, period. This is the gospel. Period. Without Jesus and without the gospel, a person is not a Christian. I understand when I wake up in the morning, when I have a sermon like this to preach, by the way, some of the things that I'm going to say but I do mean them in the utmost love and care and truth and to honor God and his word because I love Jesus and I want you to know about him and I want you to know what he says. I think also in this apostolic witness is the canon. It's believing what John has given us here. That you hear what the apostles said and the apostles took the Old Testament in its entirety to be scripture. So we believe them in that. In addition to that, we have the wonderful, amazing truth of the, the New Testament. We have the Gospels. Oh, I love the Gospels. We have Paul's 13 letters. Amazing. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I heard about 1 Colossians this morning. I don't know that one. I say that with love. I probably shouldn't have. It wasn't in my outline. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians. It's for freedom that Christ has set you three. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. What an amazing, wonderful book. Holy smokes. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 
Paul encouraging Timothy in the faith because things are going south all over the church. First and Second Timothy, with the love of a father, just encourages this young pastor, keep going, keep going, Timothy. In season and out of season, stand up. Tell them the truth about Jesus. First John, second John, third John. We don't read, by the way, we don't read Philemon, second John, third John. We don't read these books enough. Minor prophets, 6 a.m. Bible study, Zoka. We don't read the minor prophets enough. They're amazing. 6 a.m. is a Bible study at Zoka Coffee. Where was I? First, second, third, John. Hebrews. Oh, man, Hebrews. It's got so much about animal sacrifice and Old Testament stuff. We stay out of there. <coughs> Excuse me. But what a wonderful exegesis, an interpretation of uh, first uh, Psalm 110, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make enemies a footstool of my feet. And Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, uh, that he's going to give us, uh, that he's going to write the, the law on our hearts and that, that even though that the people of God treated him the way that they treated him, God's going to treat the people of God differently because he's so gracious and wonderful and amazing. Hebrews is a real, oh, it's my favorite. No, they're all my favorite. They really are. Um, Revelation. He's coming back. He's coming back, and when he comes back, it's going to be awesome. He's coming back. Right? We believe the Bible. We believe God's Word. If, if someone rejects the apostolic witness, John is going to say they're anti-Christ. They're anti-Messiah. And how do we know? Because they rejected what we gave them. So how do we interact with the world then if we're going to say that if you're not pro-Christ, you're anti-Christ? This is strong language, right? I, I'm aware of that. It's also biblical language. And so we work with that. So how, how do we do this? Um, one... The amazing truth of the gospel is the gospel uh, allows us as people who know how loved and how accepted and how forgiven we are in Jesus to interact with people uh, with grace and love and kindness who are radically different than us. And that we even understand that my job as a Christian, not just as a pastor, not just as a preacher, my job as a Christian is to deliver the mail. Jesus does the saving. I do the, I'll make up a participle, the ambassador-ing. I'm the ambassador, he's the savior. He's the king, I'm the subject. I bring the good news. He's reconciling the world to himself through his church who are his ambassadors. It's up to me to share the good news. Jesus is the savior. I'm not the pro-apologist. I'm not the guy who has to be the smartest guy, you or me, we together, we don't have to be the smartest person in the room. We don't have to be the wisest person in the room. We don't have to be the best person in the room. We don't have to be the holiest person in the room. We have to be the ambassador. I deliver to you the mail. Jesus saves sinners. Now, when you're doing evangelism, I would recommend that you don't do that hand motion or say it that way, <laughs> just for the record. But you gave me the job to do, and I showed up, and I said, I deliver you the mail. <laughs> that will weird them out. Don't do that. I get to do that. Deliver. No, you can. You're free in Christ to do it, right? I don't need to tell you what to do. I'm just saying it might be weird. So what's amazing about the gospel is that the truth of the gospel is that if I believe the gospel for myself, that as I deliver this mail, it means that I can be, um, how to say this correctly, right? I can be loving, I can be gracious, I can be kind to the people I'm delivering that mail to. And really, here's the deal, right? If you're not a Christian and you're with us right now and you're thinking about what I'm saying and, and, and this idea, so if, if I'm right, I'm bringing you the best news there ever was, period. There's nothing more important than this reality of Jesus. If I'm wrong, we all believe a truth 
that empowers us to say things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, uh, you know, that, that, that we're to respond to you who do not believe what we're saying with love and kindness to care for your spiritual needs and your felt needs. And um, honestly, my job's not to regulate your morality. My job's to tell you who Jesus is. That's the truth of the gospel and its effect. Now, here's also what I would say. This is my fear as we do life in Seattle. We want to be accepted. Yes? You like to be liked. You like your neighbors to think you're funny or cool or not the weird guy in the block. I live in Seattle. I own two goats. I have four children. I am by default the weird guy on the block. The goats are not actually that weird. It's the four children that really set you <laughs> apart. Everybody likes my children and the goats. Everybody likes the goats. They like my children too. My children are amazing and I love them and they're great. But sometimes I think we can spend so much time trying to be liked by the world that we don't ever actually tell them who Jesus is. So I'm, I might read different things and you read and think about different things and you think of because I'm, I'm a pastor, but I'm seeing this in the church a lot. I'm seeing people spending a lot of time trying to be liked by those who are anti-Christ, anti-Messiah. And honestly, I've seen one of the biggest ways is by making fun of those who are pro-Messiah. Uh, I see a lot of people getting a lot of favor by making fun of or disliking other Christians. Oh, you know, there's such an old, that's old-timey stuff there. That, I don't know what I think, you know, there's all of the theory about that thing and that thing, and who knows what y'all means anyways. Come on, move on. You've got to be careful. I'm not saying be a jerk, and I want your neighbors to like you because you're a Christian who loves them and cares about their spiritual and felt needs. But we can spend a lot of time trying to make our life and our message so palatable that we backpedal and wash the message of who Jesus is right away. And, and my concern here, when I see this in pastors and churches and myself, I see this cropping up in myself or in Christians, is that the hope is not really that these people would know Jesus, it's that they would like us. We want to be liked. Now, sometimes we can feel like, well, if they just really, really liked us, then maybe they would love Jesus. There's some truth to that. We need to be careful, though. The statement, you know, you just got to be a really, really good person, and then they'll ask. Which yoga studio you go to? Which self-help book you're reading? Now, again, there's this fine line here between being a jerk and just not saying anything about who Jesus is ever. Because honestly, you can be, I've, I've literally had people in my home eating my food, enjoying my hospitality, and they find out I'm a Christian, and all of a sudden the tone of the whole conversation changes. I literally couldn't be being nicer to them at the time. Conversation changes. Oh, you're one of those, you're one of those guys. Yeah, and I'm even a pastor. <laughs> oh, goodness. It goes one way or the other. It goes that way. Or like, you're not like any pastor I've ever known. Well, probably haven't known that many pastors who live in Seattle. To be honest. People say that. I'm like, which pastors do you know? Do you know some pastors? Well, I don't actually, but I, had, I saw TV once. I saw a guy on TV. I digress. But let us be careful as we guard the apostolic witness in our own lives. That our heart and our hope is that they would meet Jesus not that just we'd be liked. Okay, let's keep going. 20. But you, oh man, this is, this is, I'm so thankful for John. I don't know if you've noticed this in John. One, he's hard to preach because he's, he's very Semitic in Hebrew in his thinking. So he does these circles where he comes around, you're like, what are you talking about? How do we get back here? We're in chapter 4. I thought you talked about this in chapter 2. We're in chapter 2. I thought you talked about this in chapter 1. He does these circles, right? He's also really encouraging. He rarely comes down on something without then saying, but by the way. This is by the way. But you, 
Anchor Church. That's the second, second present plural, which we don't have in English, but y'all would be the appropriate way to say that. But y'all have been anointed by the Holy One, capital H, capital O. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. When he says all knowledge, I think he again has in mind the apostolic witness. You have the Bible, you have the Navi, and the, the Katavium, and the Torah, the wisdom, and the prophets, and, the, uh, and the, the law, which together make up the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew order. You have the apostolic witness. Uh, Don Carson and Doug Moo think that they actually have John's gospel, and that he's defending against heresies. They actually have John's gospel in their hands. I think that they might be right, um, but we don't know. So I'll say I think they might be right. Because what we have is the word, and that's what actually matters. But they have all knowledge. They know who Jesus is. They know that he's Messiah. They have the gospel. They have the story of God. God made everything good. Humans broke it. Jesus promised to send one to fix it. He came. His name is Jesus. We now live in the church era. We have life eternal through Jesus Christ. He's coming to put it back together. You have all knowledge. You know what's up. Amen. It's good knowledge. It is good Good stuff. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. So you, you have the Spirit. As Christians in the church era, on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost, Christians have the Holy Spirit residing inside of them, dwelling inside of them. And this is the truth of, of the gospel, that when we say God is with you, we can say that and mean it because I know for a fact that if you are a Christian, according to Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is with you. God is with you in the Holy Spirit. He's with me. He's guiding. He's leading. He's giving life. Right? The gospel is two sides. The atonement of sin, the washing clean, regeneration, blood bought, paid for, right with God, and life in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not just your sins paid for and you get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. Yes, you do get to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Praise the Lord. I would never say that's not the gospel. That is the gospel, plus life now in God. Our life as the church is now with Jesus. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You have all knowledge. You have the Word, is what I would say to us now. They have the apostolic testimony. Verse 21. I write to you, listen, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Now here we go. Switches back. He encourages them. And then 22, who is the liar, but who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The liar. Definite article par excellence. You want to know if you were to go to a dictionary in God's world? I don't know. That's silly. That's dumb. I'll stop there. The idea here is that if you were to go, you ever do this, you go to a dictionary. Sometimes there's a picture. I've never seen a dictionary with pictures, but some people say, if you go to the dictionary, look it up, you see the picture of this. Well, if you want to go to a dictionary in this framework, in John's dictionary, and you look under the word liar, you would see someone rejecting Jesus. That is the liar. The ultimate realization of a liar is one who rejects Jesus. It says, Jesus is not God. Jesus is not Messiah. Jesus is not Savior. Jesus doesn't save. Jesus isn't who he says he is. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Many paths of one mountain? Nope. Many paths of one mountain to the white throne of judgment. Many paths that lead to Jesus in Revelation 19 at the end. Jesus who saves not because of what we do, but because of his goodness and his grace and his mercy. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this Antichrist idea, this is the Antichrist. This is the embodiment of being against God, is the rejection of Jesus. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who dies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The Trinity is a package. You cannot say, I love God, but don't love Jesus. You cannot say, I love Jesus, but don't love God. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. They're the same God. 
I mean, you're in Seattle. You're having an evangelistic conversation, and someone says, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not really into this religious stuff, but Jesus, I, I mean, I think Jesus said some good stuff. You say, where? What stuff did he say that was good? Have you read the Gospels? Well, I don't really like Paul and his letters. I don't really like the Old Testament, but I'm into the Gospels. The only people who say that are people who haven't actually read the Gospels. Jesus says the hardest stuff around, by the way. Jesus also says some of the greatest, most loving stuff around. We understand it to be one Bible. It's okay to have a red-letter edition of the Bible. I'll say that first, asterisk. It is okay to have one. But my fear is that sometimes it makes us feel like the red letters are more holy than the rest of the thing. The whole thing is God's word. It is all God's word, and we receive it all gladly. Twenty-four. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He's going to say that again and again and again. Take this truth, this gospel truth, and let it stay with you, remain with you, abide in you, be with you. If, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. How do we know God? Through His Word. Some people got to see Jesus walk on earth. And some of us received the gospel, you and I, through his word. The amazing thing is together we all get to see Jesus forever. Okay, so if this is where we are at in human history, and this is how we know this is where we're at in human history, what do we do about it? How do we do it? If this is the last hour, if you and I are living in the last hour, what do we do about it? John tells us. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son of the Father. Abide. Remain. And here's the promise. And this is the promise made to us. Eternal life. I, I, again, this is one of those phrases. I cannot beat the drum enough in John's writings. Eternal life. I am going to amen duration. We are with Jesus face to face forever. And it will be awesome. Eternal life starts now too. So we get it and we have him forever. And we have him right now. It will be better when we have him forever. And right now you and I can talk to Jesus and he hears us. We are his people. He cares about you. He has the hairs on your head numbered. And we get to live a life as his ambassadors and as his people remaining in him. This word remain uh, or abide, uh, 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 to dwell with, to live with. Live with God. Live your life with God, Jesus. It is a foretaste for what it will be like when we're with him forever, 100%. Right now, as the church, this is the foretaste. This is, this is the appetizer for the great thing that is coming. And the promise is if we remain in him now, we have eternal life with him forever. So what does it look like to live a life that abides? If an abiding life, if this remaining life, if this living with God life, what does it look like? If that's what it means, so that, our, that our, this is what we do in the midst of the culture wars and in America in 2015 and with things the way they are, we remain in God, we live with God, we believe God, we trust His Son, we live out the gospel, and we stand firm in the faith of Jesus Christ. We live with God, that's what we do. We live it out as God's people. And, and I think what this looks like ultimately comes down um, well, let's do it this way. I think it's helpful to have a diagnostic then. Just like we can ask, as I said earlier, are we trying to be liked by people or have people know Jesus? It's okay to be liked with people and have people know Jesus, but if really your aim is just to be liked, they're probably not going to hear about Jesus because, hey, people don't often want to hear that they're a sinner unless they actually really know, and then they're glad to hear that God saves sinners. But I digress. So here's what I think. Here's what I think. Here's what I think John's after. Here's how I think we can tell. Do we have a life that's lived with God? A life with Jesus? Your life with Jesus? I think this is about two things. This is about holiness, and this is about being set apart, which can sort of be synonyms in a sense. But what I have in mind by holiness, I mean that we're changed people. Right? 
If you know God through Jesus Christ, you're washed free from all your sins. You're a different person than you were before you met him. You're made new and alive and right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, we live that out. We live a set-apart life. You can't meet Jesus. John's even going to say this because he's going to do the circular thing. He'll straight up say, you can't love God and not love Christians. It doesn't work. A plus B equals C. You love God. You love the people of God. That's the way it goes. That's how you know you love God. He'll give us that diagnostic in chapter 4. It's coming. We'll get there. Not today. I'll wind it down. We'll have lunch. Come back and we'll get there. Right? But holiness, we live a holy life, and we live that set-apart. We actually live out the set-apart life. Now, this is important because in our time and place, people take texts out of their context, and a text out of context, as some have said, is a pretext to make the text say whatever you want the text to say. great example of that is James chapter 2, I believe it's verse 9. Someone can double-check me on, on that, but you don't have to right now. Just listen. We love the verse... This is true religion, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And you may, if you've been with our church for any point in time, you've heard me say this before. This is what I call a hobby horse. It really upsets me when people just stop there because what happens when it says dot, dot, dot? And to remain unstained from the world. What? I thought it's all about social justice. It is because if you love Jesus and have been loved by Jesus, of course you're going to love orphans and widows and their affliction. And while you do that, you care about your holiness and your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both about our commitment to Jesus, His cross and His resurrection. They're both about us living holy, set-apart lives that are special and different in the world. And because we've been loved by God, just like uh, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, we've been blessed to be a blessing because we've been loved by God, we love others. Right? How can you not love others when God has loved us so much, forgiven us so much? Right? Uh, another one that loves to get quoted is Jeremiah 29, where it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Take it in its context. What does it say? Build houses, plant gardens, give your sons and daughters in marriage, and have kids. Keep going. I've sent you to this land, and nobody likes this. Maybe if you've been in the morning Bible study, you'd know this, but they are sent to Babylon because they were worshiping pretend gods. It was a punishment. He said, you're going to go there, you're going to be there, you're going to be chastised, and I'm going to bring you home. Because God is gracious. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you people. He says, you're going to go there, and I'm going to bring you home. But while you're there, what do they do? Yes, seek the welfare of the city. Is Anchor Church concerned with the welfare of Seattle? Absolutely. Absolutely, every day. What is the greatest welfare in the city? That this city would know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And their felt needs. And the felt needs. You look at the Good Samaritan uh, uh, proverb, or uh, pardon me, the parable, it's all about the guy's felt needs. The guy needs some help, help him. Okay? You're a Christian, someone needs some help, help him. Because you've been helped by the Lord Jesus Christ more than you can possibly imagine. And while you're changing their tire, say, have you ever heard about Jesus? Because you're now changing their tire because they needed help. And they have to wait because you've got to turn the thing and it takes forever. And you're like, when is the butt no, the, the not going to come off this thing? You take the next one off. I had a state patrolman come and help me. I was in, uh, in the Chuckanuts on my way to Bellingham. Van tire popped. It was my grandma's van. I was bringing it from Seattle to Bellingham for my parents. And there I am. And it's one of those new fangdangled vans. And you can't, I couldn't figure out how to get a spare tire. I don't know why you build a car with a spare tire that's mysteriously hidden somewhere. Uh, my car, when <laughs> you open the trunk and there's the tire and you put it on and you keep driving. And I'm sitting there for like 15 minutes trying to figure it out. And uh, the state patrolman comes up behind me. And there I am. Hello, sir. He starts helping me with a tire, and we get talking. Because he had to help me now. He was helping me, and he's there, and I was a bit of a captive audience, praise the Lord. Very nice guy, um, the state patrolman. But anyway, so yes, we're seeking the welfare of the city, but why would you plant gardens? Well, they're, they're Old Testament saints, so they have dietary restrictions. They've got to plant their own gardens to eat their own food to stay holy. Why do you got to build your own house? Because you live by yourself, because you're the people of God. And in that time and place, the way that God related to his people, they lived apart from other people. 
Um, why do you give your sons and daughters in marriage? Because God has commanded to not marry people who worship pretend gods. So when you look at the text of Jeremiah 29, which everyone says, oh, this is all about social justice, read it again. Yeah, they're to be about the welfare of the city. Abraham, welfare. He helps people. God blesses people wherever he goes. Uh, Joseph in Egypt. Yeah, he helps Egypt. Yeah. Set apart, sitting at the table by himself, eating his own food. Now, of course, that's because the Egyptians, if we're being technical, thought that he as a Hebrew uh, was not worthy to sit at the table with them. But he still has a set-apart life. I digress. So this means we live a, a life with a heart for God. That's our holiness. But then we also live out the set-apart life. And so I'm just going to give you a few points on how to diagnose a set-apart life and what a set-apart life looks like. What is, how does our life look different than Seattleites who do not know Jesus? Number one, prayer. Why do you pray? not just to make you feel better. It might, because God's gracious. We pray because we trust God, because we know He is the King of all things. And when we pray to God, we are acknowledging He's God. Two, the Bible. We read the Bible because we care about hearing the voice of God. I care about my life and your life being informed by God and His voice. Three, community. What are we to do? to be the people of God together. Do you know how many commands have the word one another in them? One another, one another, one another, one another. To be a member of this church is take, to take responsibility for the people of this church and have them take responsibility for you and your following of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as Christians, we love without compromise. What does that mean? That means that a set-apart life looks like one where because of the gospel, as, I, as we kind of said earlier, I can love people, I can care for people, I can, I, can, I can spend time with people who are different than me. I can spend time with people who are anti-Christos. I can spend time with people who are not pro-Jesus with the hope that they would become Christians and become pro-Jesus, but I can spend time with them and I don't have to feel, I, I know what we're doing when we're doing it and the aim is that they would know God. And it's without compromise. Five. I mean, this is, I, this is radical. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Everyone forgets that the golden rule comes from the Bible. It's radical. Do you know what it actually means? Everybody wants other people to not put themselves first. Do you know how radical it is to live an other-centered life where you don't put yourself first absolutely all the time? Have four children, seven and under. It is a lesson in sanctification. It is a beautiful and glorious lesson in sanctification. And you realize, man, I really do put myself first all the time. I assess everything I do about me. I'm in the center all the time. And when I'm in the center, God's not. It is radical to live an other-centered lifestyle. You want to talk about the things that people will ask? So what's different about you? Not just he's nice. Yeah, he goes to a yoga studio. He's nice. Burns off the whatever, the thing of whatever. As you can tell, I'm not a yoga enthusiast, and I choose to use it as the illustration, and then I run into problems. I've learned not to use basketball illustrations anymore because they just sort of taper off at some point in time, and everyone says, what is he talking about? But there is something radical when you live a sacrificial, other-centered life. Number six, we carry the gospel message. You have been put in a place by Jesus. You have been given your spot in life to do whatever he has given you to do for his glory and for your joy and to tell people about who he is. I don't care what you do for a living. You are there to tell them about Jesus. I, I don't care where you live in what part of town. You're there for the gospel. How do I know that? Go therefore, make disciples, etc., etc., Matthew 18, 28, pardon me. I don't, I don't think I'm reading too far into the text. And, and finally, we're people who worship this God. We live as servants of Jesus. Because if this is the truth, which it is, that Jesus has saved us and made us alive and given us life and given us himself, and I mean, we're alive, holy, living, forgiven, grace-filled people. 
We should live lives that reflect that reality with fervent, adamant worship of Jesus. And that can look a lot of different ways. But it certainly doesn't mean that we bury Jesus as far deep down on our personal resume as possible. We are Christians. It is our life. He is our life. His gospel is our message. And God is our great joy. Enjoy Him. Enjoy Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for today. We need You. You've saved us. You've forgiven us. Help us, Lord, to assess correctly. Is my life a life that demonstrates what's actually true of me in the gospel? And help us to live it. Help us to know that we're, we're off there. That you for, you for, we get to sit and say, I'm sorry, I forgive you, and then we go on with the rest of our life for your glory. We don't do something to make up for it. You've already made for, up for it for us on your cross. So help us just live in this city. And I just pray for people to know you here and for us to, to know that, yeah, it is the last hour. And what do I do at the last hour? I abide with God and, and hold fast to the promise of eternal life. I hold fast to the promise that you're going to come and you're going to do what you're going to do for your glory. Jesus, help us to glorify you. Help us to make your name famous with our lives. Help us to live with fervent and adamant dedication to you. Help us to live other-centered, Jesus-focused, Bible-driven lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. For your glory and for our joy and in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.